Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Mike Spaulding, it's going to be that type of day. I can tell. First text just came in. George Floyd died from a heart condition and drugs. Free Officer Chauvin. You haven't even started the show yet. I haven't even started the show, and that is where we start off. George Floyd died from a heart condition and drugs. Free Officer Chauvin. Well, I, I don't think that that is going to happen. I, I, as, let, let's start off the program here. The jury is deliberating. The, the verdict can come in at, at any time. You just never know how long it's going to take jurors to reach decisions. They are sequestered. And so typically what happens, if you're sequestered, there is a pressure to try to get a result. No, nobody being likes the, the novelty of being locked up in a hotel wears off very quickly. So I, I think when you have a sequestered jury, I think that there, there's a likelihood that they're they're going to get down to business, um, and I, I would expect a verdict, if not today, sometime in the next day or so. I, I do appreciate also that I think the jury has to know how significant that this case is, and even though they've been told not to watch media accounts and things of the like, there's no question in my mind that, that they're aware of, of everything that's going on, which is where we start off the program today. I don't know if you have ever been to Minneapolis. Minneapolis is a very, very nice urban city. Right now, Minneapolis looks like, well, I don't know, Berlin in World War II. I mean, here's the deal after World War II. Let me, let me read you a portion of the story that appears in the Associated Press today. Just outside the entrance to Smile Orthodontics, in a Minneapolis neighborhood of craft breweries and trendy shops, two soldiers in jungle camouflage and body armor were on watch Monday. Assault rifles slung over their backs. Snow flurries blew around them. A few steps away at the Iron Door Pub, three more National Guard soldiers and a Minneapolis police officer stood out front watching the street. A handful of other soldiers were scattered nearby, along with four camouflage Humvees and a couple of police cars. The story continues. Um, this one of the residents says the city feels like it's occupied by the military. It, it's so weird. More than three thousand National Guard soldiers, along with police officers, state police, sheriff's deputies, and other law enforcement personnel, have flooded the city in recent days in anticipation of the verdict. Um, concrete barriers, chain link fences, and barbed wire now ring parts of downtown Minneapolis so that authorities can quickly close off the courthouse where the trial is being held. It's become normal in recent days to pass convoys of desert tan military vehicles on nearby highways and stumble across armed men and women standing guard. One day they'll park their armored vehicles in front of the high-end kitchen store with $160 bread knives and $400 cooking pots. The next they'll be outside the Depression-era movie theater or the popular Mexican grocery store or the liquor store ransacked by rioters during the protests that followed Floyd's death. Meanwhile, hundreds and perhaps thousands of stores and other buildings have been boarded up across the city, from absolute bail bonds to glass-walled downtown office towers to Floyd's 99 uh, barbershop. And it, it goes on and on, and it talks about how 
um, the, when they had the initial set of riots, and that's what they were, they estimate that there was about $350 million in damage done to mostly commercial properties. So the, Minneapolis and the governor of Minnesota and local authorities and federal authorities are apparently you know, on, on board to not allow what happened before to happen again. But the question that's being raised, and this is one of the stories I'm looking at, says it leaves many wondering how much is too much. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I mean, Minneapolis right now really is like like an armed camp. It, it is It is like cities after the war. They are preparing. There's barbed wire. There's concrete, you know, embankments that are put up. There's windows that are boarded up all across town. And there's thousands and thousands of armed people, whether it's National Guard or whether it's local police officers or county police officers, they're all there with the idea that they are going to keep order once a verdict comes down. My question is, in your mind, is this overkill? 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. It clearly is assuming the worst. People are afraid, business owners are afraid, citizens are afraid, Communities are afraid that um, if this verdict comes down and it doesn't meet the satisfaction of the mob. And by the way, I'm the guy that thinks he's going to get convicted. I'm the guy that thinks he should be convicted of all three counts. I think he is going to get convicted of all three counts, but I could be wrong. You just never know. But I think there is a concern that regardless of what the verdict is, people might be prone to engage in violence. So is this overkill? My answer is, is no. It is the only reasonable thing that you can do, understanding what happened in that city before and understanding how volatile this situation unfortunately is. But no, I, I don't I don't think it's overkill. I think it is unfortunate, but I think anything else would be irresponsible. What do you think? Eight five five six one six one six twenty we discuss in a moment. One of the reasons the riots in Kenosha last summer got so out of control, one of the reasons there was so much damage in Madison last summer is that authorities were not prepared for all the violence that, that took place. And so, for example, in Kenosha, it, it those first two nights, and I think authorities will tell you that, they were they were outmanned, they were overwhelmed. They, they had stuff under control by the third night, but by the third night, that's where you had outside groups and the outside militia people and the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world, you know, coming in to provide their own sort of quote-unquote security, and we were off to the races with, with that. Kenosha, Wauwatosa, after the decisions in Joseph Mensa, they, they learned from that and said, OK, this is not going to happen again. So in, in anticipation of potentially volatile decisions by the legal system, they were going to be prepared. Minneapolis right now is an armed camp. There, there's just no question about it. Buildings boarded up, concrete barriers, barbed wire fences, thousands of troops with um, weapons. 
um, military type of convoys because there is a concern about what will happen when the verdict comes down. And and I think some people some people are saying, well, what if he's acquitted on all counts? I, I don't know. I think that there's going to be at least a possibility that some people are going to take to the streets, even if he's convicted on all counts, like I think is, in my opinion, the most likely thing to happen. But I could be wrong about that. So is it overkill to prepare like they are? 855-616-1620. Let's start with David in Mequon. David, hello. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Um, It is overkill in the sense that it's for the protection of the people, especially in light with everything that we've seen uh, going around. And look what's going on in Portland right now. I mean, Portland is just under siege. They're overwhelmed. And Minneapolis, people don't realize um, since the start of the year, I think Minneapolis is one of the highest percentage increases of murders of any city in the country, and and it's 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 a tinderbox. And Maxine Waters certainly didn't help uh, did the other day. Yeah, with the confrontation, get a lot more confrontational, and uh, and then uh, Joe Biden, president, uh, just stated, you know, he's praying that the right know, verdict the is reached. Officer, yeah. right, right. So there's too many people weighing into this. And and it's not for the better, and it can really it's going to raise emotions. And I, I do think there is a potential, even if there is an acquittal, that you could see just you know, with all the looting that has been going on in the Twin Cities, um, you know, even from last year, it, there's a strong po- possibility of that happening again. Wait, do you do you mean with so, an acquittal or, or with a conviction? I, see, I think there's a possibility no, 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 even I, if there's a conviction. They're gonna, they're, they're, no, they're going to convict them. Uh, but what I'm saying is there's still going to be a high possibility of of where people are still just I agree. mad and every, no. everything else. And, and it's just no, I agree with you. No, thanks. Nicole. No, I, I, I agree. I think that I think that even if there is a conviction in this particular case um, or on on multiple counts, I, I think there's still a possibility that some people will, again, take to the streets and, and use. Some people will take to the streets and use it as as an opportunity to demonstrate on what they perceive to be the injustices of the criminal justice system, even though the, the, the verdict is to their liking. Other people will use it as an opportunity to engage in anarchy and say, hey, this is my chance to see if I can loot the Walmart and get those big screen TVs. Now, David, you made a really interesting point about, about Joe Biden and Maxine Waters. I I, I, I I see there's two different things that are, are related here. Maxine Waters, and I, I sent out a tweet about this yesterday, and we talked about it yesterday on, on the program. So crazy Maxine Waters helicopters into Minneapolis. She's a congresswoman from California. She helicopters into Minneapolis, um, and, and she ends up at a rally in Brooklyn Center. This was a, a rally on Saturday night. Um, in response to the, the shooting of uh, the, the, the 20-year-old, the accidental shooting by the police officer, she encourages people to violate curfew. And she says, hey, if the verdicts don't come out right, I, I want you to get confrontational. Now, I, I thought that that was irresponsible in the extreme. Um, and, and for everybody on the left who were appalled at the remarks that President Trump made on January 6th, my question is, where, where are the where is the people that are appalled at Maxine you know, Waters? And what she said, even more significantly, this this became an issue in the trial. 
because yesterday, before closing arguments, the defense attorney stands up and asks for a mistrial. He says, look, I, this is, I, my guy can't get a fair trial because the, look at the, the climate. And at that time, the jury wasn't sequestered. Here you have the, this politician with some sort of national following who is arguably encouraging people to go out and engage in violence. Now, some people might not say that, might say that wasn't what she said, but I, I think you could reasonably interpret what she said in that fashion. So he's saying, hey, I want a, I want a mistrial. My guy can't get a fair trial. And, and the judge actually picked up on it. The judge said, look, I'm not going to give you a mistrial, but I concede that what Maxine Waters did has given you a basis for appeal in the event of a conviction. I'll give you that Congresswoman Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. This is what the judge says. This goes back to what I've been saying from the beginning. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch and our function. If they want to give their opinions, they should do it in a respectful and in a manner consistent with their oath to the Constitution and a co-equal branch of government. The failure to do so is abhorrent. And then and he says, oh, but I, I'm, I'm not going to give you the mistrial, but I understand. But what she said has created an issue on appeal, which is the last darn thing that you want. Now, President Biden today and our caller, David, was making reference to it. President Biden today, he waited until the jury was sequestered. By that, I mean the jury is now locked up. So the jury will not, informing its deliberations, in deliberating, the jury will not know what President Biden said today because they're, they're not getting newspapers, they're not able to listen to the radio, they're not able to watch TV, they're, they're not going to get any coverage. So they're not going to know that President Biden essentially came out today and while he didn't say, I think the guy is guilty as you know what, should be convicted, that, that's clearly the tone of, of his remarks. So he, he waited at least until the jury was sequestered. But, and, and here's, here's, here's a but with this. I believe that President Biden would have been so much better off if he had just waited until after the verdict had come in to go public or, or to reach out in, in situations like this. Because if if the verdict is not what President Biden wants it to be, again, this is going to be fuel for some of the people who want to take to the streets. And I understand Joe Biden's not out there saying, go loot Walmarts and, and go attack police officers. I know that's not what he's saying, but the, again, it's another remark which for the people who decide they want to behave in this fashion, again, throws more and more fuel on the fire. And it's why I wish that President Biden would have kept his counsel. Just just wait another day until the, the verdict is out. And if you think it's the right verdict, OK, then that's fine. You, you come out and say it. But by talking about the case, especially when you're the president of the United States, before that verdict has been rendered, if if people interpret your remarks in a certain fashion and act in a certain way, well, then are you directly responsible? No. But again, people on the left looking at what happened on January 6th, lots of people are saying, hey, we're going to impeach Donald Trump because of the stuff that, that he said. Now, admittedly, the stuff Trump said was much more volatile, but I would have wished President Biden could have just held off weighing in on this until after the verdict was reached. Back with more in just a minute. Ah, proof that we can reason together. Jeff, I'm one of your lefty listeners. I agree with you. 
Maxine was way out of line, just as Trump was. I certainly believe that she should have stayed away. Yeah, again, I mean, you look at what what she did. It's I understand you're you're playing to your base, although she's a congresswoman from California. Why you feel the need to helicopter into uh, Minneapolis and then tell people to break the curfew. And if the result of the judicial process isn't what we like, we need to be more confrontational. What you think that gains is beyond me. Jeff, does anyone really think the jurors went home and didn't watch the news? The jury should have been locked up all along. I, I think there's a strong argument for that. If the problem is. When you lock up jurors, I, and all the different trials I had, only a handful were sequestered. Juries get squirrely when you get sequester them, especially for a trial that's going to last a month. Um, I, I, you know, I guess, I guess time will tell how exposed the jury was to this. And, and the truth of the matter is, I think anybody on that jury had to, unless they were like living in a cave somewhere, had to understand the national attention and the, the scope of, of what this trial was all about. Um, number of people, I think, taking the position, you agree with me. Look, I, I, I hope, I, I actually hope that these preparations become completely and totally unnecessary. Would, wouldn't that be nice that, you know, there's, after the verdict, if people take to the streets, they're able to resist the urge to burn stuff down and try to dilute the dick sporting goods and all those type of things. And, and that, you, the, the National Guard presence ends up being unnecessary. That is the ideal situation. But right now, all this stuff, the barbed wire, the concrete fences, the armed troops, it's there as a deterrent from pe- for people to engage in the, the type of rioting and lawlessness, which unfortunately, some of these different social protest um, movements and activities have morphed into. And again, I, I think... One of the interesting things to see is is even if there are guilty verdicts, will some people decide to use this, again, as their opportunity to engage in anarchy, just like the caller was making reference to what's been going on in Portland. Portland's been in a state of siege for months and months, and, and it didn't matter. At first it was, well, we don't like Trump. And we don't like the presence of, of federal stuff. So they pull out the federal people. Trump leaves. They're still rioting in Portland. It's just like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And as long as authorities let them get away with it, unfortunately, they're going to continue to do it. There are heroes among us who run towards danger rather than away from it. We call them first responders. WTMJ is partnering with Waterstone Bank, IndyCar, Rev Group, Grand Prix at Road America, and Heiser Automotive to honor police officers, firefighters, health care providers, and countless others who work every day to protect our families and loved ones. If you know of a first responder that deserves recognition for their duties, go to WTMJ.com and make a submission. It's Waterstone Bank's salute to service only here on WTMJ. Jordan, a number of people commenting on my my, my desire to try to turn over the jury fees and, and, and it was just a small amount of money but I, I got paid so I thought it was the right thing to do and I, I felt good about myself making the effort to try to do it and and ultimately everybody said it was too much work here's a text Jeff you're a boy scout and altar boy all wrapped up in one no I don't think so I just it just you know I, I was getting paid Jeff in stark contrast I worked for a large company that insisted that you turn over all jury pay back to them if they were simultaneously paying you Jeff some companies pay lost wages from your job minus the daily sti- stipend um, mine did well and I, I guess I, I thought that was fair that's why I tried to 
I, I but it was it was just kind of a paperwork thing. And it, again, we weren't talking any sort of big money, but uh, I tried. All right, Jordan, you know who is producing the show because Gru is off yet again. You know what uh, you you know what four twenty is, right? Of course I do, Jeff. All right, and what what today? What well, today is April twentieth. April twentieth. There are people who believe that just like. Just like Martin Luther King's birthday is a national holiday, just like the 4th of July is a national holiday, just like Memorial Day, just like, um, let's see, Labor Day. They think that April 20th, today, should be a national holiday. Why is that, Jordan? No, I don't do this. Obviously, I know what today is, but it's for marijuana purposes. It, it is. It is. And a matter of fact, I am looking at a story today. Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson calling on President Biden to recognize April 20th. That would be today as a national marijuana holiday. But Willie is going a step further. He also wants April 20th through his birthday on April 29th. I swear to God, I can't make this up to be recognized as the, quote, high holidays, end quote. Um, yeah, they, they want they want this to be not just April 20th, not just the national holiday, but they want this to be a legitimate national week of celebrating pot. And Willie and his Texas-based concert team has started a petition that have gained more than 2,000 signatures already and counting. Okay, now here's the tougher question, Jordan. Do you know why, why potheads want to make April 20th, a national holiday. Why Why April 20th as opposed to May 5th or, you know, September 27th? I do not know that. All right, fair enough. Okay, well, that's why you tuned into the Wagner Show today, because this will be that, that sort of useless but important piece of information that you can share around the dinner table tonight, because you'll say, oh, you know, you know, this is, uh, th- there, there's a push to make April 20th a pothead holiday. And the obvious question is, well, why, why would April 20th be the pothead holiday? Well, okay, here, here is the deal. In, in marijuana lore, weed history, uh, the, the rumor is that in the 70s, a group of California teams, teenagers, would use the code word 420. They, they, they put 420, like, like our zip code is 414. They put 420 as a code word to signal after-school smoke sessions. So, you know, if you were trying, if you were reaching out to me and trying to invite me when we were in high school, if we were in high school together, invite me to, you know, go, go meet you somewhere and we could smoke dope together, you'd, you'd just, you'd reach out and the code would be, 420, 420, Jeff. Um, a marijuana user smokes a, um, let's see, and then, then of course, uh, one of the big celebrations, Hippie Hill in Golden Gate Park, etc. Now, I, I understand that there there might be other theories as to, you know, where the term 420 came from, but I, I think it does kind of date back to the... Um, Date get back to the 70s, San Rafael High School in the early 70s, a group of marijuana users who called themselves the Waldos. And there's one other interesting thing. Why would they pick 420? Well, it's because 420, that was the time they used to get together after school. So it has now become, it has become the unofficial pothead holiday, and um, Willie... Willie, well, he thinks it should be just a, a week of celebration. Sometimes you just can't make this stuff up.
Yeah. It seems like it's working miracles for him, though. Well, guys yeah, like eighty six or eighty seven. Honest to keeps goodness, going. absolutely. Yeah, you have, you have, you know, that's another interesting point. You you have all these, all the, these celebrities and all these people from the world of rock music that I, I kind of grew up with. All these seventy icons, seventies icons, and and they are unfortunately dropping right and left. You know, you on an almost weekly basis, you see like some singer songwriter or some performer has. They've reached the age where they've died. Willie, who's, you're right, 80-whatever, he just keeps on chugging along. So I guess it works for him. Anyways, that is the history between 420. When we come back, we'll serious it up again. I want to talk about this company that's deciding they're not giving in to the pressure for boycotts. Is that the right decision? I'll explain. We'll discuss. Here's a text. Jeff, today is my birthday. Well, happy birthday. Sadly, I shared the birthday with Hitler. It is Hitler's birthday as well. It is the anniversary of the Columbine tragedy, which which it is as well. Man, I still remember that. That was that was when the idea of mass shootings were just unthinkable to us. And now, unfortunately, it's almost a daily basis. Okay, so sadly, I share this birthday with Hitler, the Columbine tragedy, the Waco fiasco, fi- fiasco, and a day removed from the Oklahoma City bombing. And oh yes. As you point out, it's also National Weed Day. <laughs> so, okay. Well, happy birthday, listener. Yeah, ha- absolutely. Happy birthday, listener. Happy birthday, texter. Um, you know, we we appreciate that. But yeah, it's a lot of stuff going on. A uh, lot of stuff going on today. All right, let me switch gears. Um, as we've talked about a lot over the last two weeks, there's been this huge reaction to Georgia passing a law which alters their voting rules. Now, I think that the coverage of this law, as I've explained in detail in the past, has been just an incredible example of media bias, knee-jerk reaction, and, and pandering. What they did in Georgia, and again, reasonable people can argue about this or that or the other thing, but to describe the new Georgia voting laws as as Jim Crow or a, a return to the bad times of, of the 50s, is just it's just not true and i do think it's interesting that joe biden condemns them but yet yet the, the the laws are still a lot less restrictive than the laws the voting laws in joe biden's delaware rob manfred the president of major league baseball moves the all-star game out of atlanta and yet the new york voting laws are in many respects more restrictive than the laws in georgia it's just there is this irony that's out there and in the knee-jerk reaction to the georgia laws what you had is you had a number of corporations getting involved as well coca-cola which is based in georgia as well as delta you know air Lines, which is also based in Georgia, they decided they were they were going to weigh in and they were going to talk about how you know unfair they thought the laws were, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, there's a company, actually, it's one of, if not the largest private employer in the state of Georgia, which essentially took the opposite track tack, and that is that is Home Depot. All right, Home Depot made a conscious decision that they are they're not going to get involved, that they are. They are not going to condemn the Georgia legislature. They're not going to threaten to pull business out of Georgia. You know, they just said, essentially, the most appropriate approach for us to take is to continue to underscore our beliefs that elections should be accessible, fair, and secure. You know, period. 
You know, that, that, that's it. But they're not going to condemn the law. And essentially, they take the position that, you know, our, our business is selling lumber and our business is selling home goods. And we're, we're not, we're not going to follow the lead of Major League Baseball. And we're not going to follow the lead of Coca-Cola and Delta. And we're not going to condemn this law opening us up, up to huge, you know, allegations of, I don't know, inconsistency, hypocrisy, political pandering, whatever. All right, so the response to that, and I have the story in my hands from the New York Times, a coalition of faith leaders in Georgia representing more than 1,000 churches in the state are today calling for a, well, wait for it, boycott of Home Depot, arguing that the company has abdicated its responsibility as a good corporate citizen by not pushing back on the state's new voting law, and the leader of this is saying, we need to put economic pressure on the business. We need the business to come out and condemn this new law. We don't believe it's simply a political matter. That matter deals with securing the future of democracy. Home Depot is indifferent to this. And so we demand they speak out or else we're going to boycott them. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, you've heard the call. You understand the issue. Are you going to bail on Home Depot? Will a boycott like this work? Or will it inspire, if this really takes hold and gets a lot of attention, will it inspire more people to go to Home Depot? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My take on this, I, I think in some respects, yes, you can threaten to boycott them, but I think there's a lot of people out there that are going to appreciate Home Depot not giving in and not kowtowing to some of the forces of political correctness like Major League Baseball did, like Coca-Cola has done, like uh, Delta Airlines have done, especially given the fact that when you look at the underlying facts, all right, there's a lot of states that have a lot, quote-unquote, worse or more restrictive voting rights laws than Georgia does. I don't think this is going to take over at all. As a matter of fact, I think this will help Home Depot. We discuss in a moment. All right, our text line is exploding with responses to the calls from faith leaders in Georgia to boycott Home Depot because, well, they haven't jumped on the train of denouncing the new Georgia voting laws. Jeff, um, I'm going to Home Depot um, <laughs> as quickly as I can get there. Jeff, where do boycotts end? If the politically correct is mad at, let's say, a comment that Ron Johnson makes, should we take it out on businesses in Wisconsin if they don't take the woke position? Ridiculous. This would never end. Um, yes, uh, Home Depot was founded in Georgia by longtime Georgia folks and has always been a loyal supporter of the state and its residents, residents and yet this is another example of it. Kudos for resisting the reactionary behavior of other large companies. Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot to be said about that. Jeff, this is all the more reason to go to Home Depot. Jeff, I will definitely choose to shop at Home Depot over other similar stores, even if I have to go out of my way based on this issue. Um, okay, Jeff, uh, the boycott ain't going to do nothing. I'm normally a Menards only kind of guy, but this boycott being called for likely means I'll go and make a purchase or two at Home Depot. Jeff, it'll, hope, it'll help Home Depot. Usually demanding something is counterproductive. Jeff, bravo Home Depot. Keep politics out and keep everybody happy. Um, yes, um, Jeff, I was going to go to Menards tonight. Now I'm going to make a trip to Home Depot. Jeff, I'm going to be going to Home Depot as often as I need something. Jeff, Home Depot, you've got some new customers. 
well, you can kind of see where you are on this. Um, Jeff, these boycotts and other fear tactics against businesses based on politics are getting out of hand and are a cancer. People have to speak up and not let this continue. Jeff, not only is Home Depot a great store and never hassled me regarding not wearing a mask, this makes me love them even more. The list goes on and on, but you get the idea. I think part of the message is for businesses who might be afraid that you're going to run afoul of some of the social justice warriors, don't. Don't be afraid. Back with more in just a couple minutes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So, Melissa, I had something happen yesterday. I, I, I hope it will all work out, but I, I know it's not going to have a happy ending. Do you ever have these stories like that? You just, you just know. You can that, feel it. You, well, okay, so here, here is the deal. In January, I got a new car. Got a new car, um, and it, it's, it's been fine. The last couple days leading up to yesterday, when I when I start, it's a new car. When I started it, the last couple days, the starter seemed a little bit sluggish. But I, I really, you know, I was thinking maybe I should have this looked at and stuff. So yesterday morning, I get ready to drive to work, get into my garage, ready for work, all set, and I go to turn the car on. It's nothing. Worst completely feeling. dead. Yes. Completely and totally dead. This is a new car. It's it's less than three months old with two thousand miles on it, and the battery is completely dead okay well so you know fran is home she takes me into work i i call um i call the dealer where i bought it from and they say well you we really got it you got to call it's a honda call honda roadside assistance they'll send somebody out and they'll they'll bring the car in okay fine so I call honda roadside and the car's at my house so it's okay it's it's not like i'm stuck on the freeway somewhere but the battery is completely dead and did i mention the car is two thousand miles and it's three months old so so I call the roadside assistance place, and they said, "Yeah, we'll we'll send." Uh, they'd work for AAA, and they mm-hmm. send a car out there that, and they they're going to tow it. They're towing it to the nearest dealer, which is not the dealer where I bought the car from. Okay, fine. So I'm like, well, obviously there's something wrong with the battery. Let's let's get this done. So they they take it to the dealer, and I get a call. Oh, it's about three thirty from the dealer. Okay, the the car is ready. It's all all taken care of, and you can come pick it up. And I said, okay, so I get over there, and I said, well, okay, what would you do? Well, we, we charged the battery, and we ran a test, and it says the battery's good. And so then I said, well, well, well why did this happen? Did I mention the car's got 2,000 miles and it's yeah, three months old? Yeah, that's the why, whole point. What, why, why did – okay, well, well um, since this is the first time this has happened, um, and it's under warranty, so you don't have to pay for it. So, well, that's good because I've only had it for three months. I, I said – but why? Why did it go dead? Why? And they said, "Well, we all we know is we ran the test, and the test says the we charged it up, and the test says the battery is good." Okay, I said, "Well, you know, how about this or that or the other?" No, we, we're not allowed the first time to do anything else. If it happened, I'm like, have the alternator, or the electrical mm-hmm. system. Obviously, there, there's something. You, I think that That's there's something going the battery. somewhere, right? Mm-hmm, exactly, yeah. because this should not happen. No, we we you know the battery's good. If, if it happens again. You can bring it back, and then we'll we'll do you know. Then we can do some more stuff. And and I'm I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, in Wisconsin, you get four times, and then it's officially a lemon. That's the the lemon law yes. thing. But oh, but no. I'm like, but it was so frustrating because I'm sort of, well, I admit I'm kind of copping an attitude with the guy because just okay, yes, I understand the battery runs now, but the fact that it died tells me. 
that just charging it, I mean, if, if it died, maybe that means it's a bad battery. You don't think it's a bad battery. Then that tells me that there's something else going on. Is it the alternators or whatever? Well, no, we just, we, we charge it. You're on your own. <laughs> like, okay. So, and this could be a major inconvenience for you down the road because if it happens again, yeah. then you got to get it towed again. Uh, well, and exactly. You, yeah. No, that, that's the, oh. that's the thing. And I'm yeah. kind of like, huh. Why don't we figure out, instead of just saying, okay, we've charged the battery, why don't we try to figure out why it was that the battery on a three-month... And the guy's saying, well, do you drive it much? And I said, well, I mean, I drive it every day. I mean, do you use it for short trips? Well, yeah, sure, I use it for short trips, but I mean, it's... It shouldn't matter right. how do, long do your you trips are. Do you run it are. in the economy road mode? Yeah, well, sometimes that could stop the alternator from charging it. I'm going... It's it's a, it's new, a brand new car. It's a brand new car. <laughs> so this so, morning you got up and uh, no, this morning it's working fine. Okay, okay. So we'll we'll see. And and again, I, I'm hoping that this is an aberration, but th- this could be like step one because again, it was sort of like, well, why don't we figure out why this is happening? And and again, maybe maybe it was just kind of a freak occurrence. But I've I've owned cars. I mean, I started driving when I was 16, and I never remember a new car's battery. Yeah, that's battery. not a good start. No, it, it is not a good start. <laughs> so so we'll, we'll see. But right. um, it was kind of like, well, Best why, don't of we, luck. why don't we figure out why this is going? I guess, see, that's the sort of thing. It's kind of like you go into your basement, and you find a puddle of water. And you can do two things. You can just kind of like wipe up the water and go away. And maybe some people do that. Or you can wipe up the water and then try to figure out where the water is coming yes, from. Yes, yes. I, I use that analogy, but I just kind of got this look that says, well, the manufacturer won't let us. This is what we have to do the first time it fails. You know, well, we can do more stuff the next time. And I'm guessing if it happens again, Jeff, you're going to know that there's something majorly wrong that's draining the battery, whatever that is. Right, whatever that may, whatever that mm-hmm. may be. So we'll um, we'll see, but that's that was my experience yesterday, like in the afternoon. Was and I, I share that just because I'm, I'm sure other people get that as well. And it's just kind of like this frustrating thing about why don't we why don't we figure out what the problem is? And again, maybe it's just this aberration. Maybe it's a one of a kind sort of thing. But I don't want to be at Miller Park, you know, coming home from a night game at ten thirty at night and go out and try to start the car and it dies again. Or even worse, you know how we report on traffic all the time. There's you know disabled vehicles oh, all over the all over the road. I'm like, how do all these vehicles, you know, just all of a sudden just stop along the road? But uh, yeah, you don't want to be that. You don't want to be there. Um, you know, yeah, short trip only driving plus long period sitting that can, um, like when you're out of town, can drain batteries. But I mean, I, I understand that. But I drive the car on almost a daily basis, and, and and yes, sometimes it's short, sometimes it's long. And yes, it's true. I didn't drive the car on Sunday. I didn't go out of the house on Sunday. But you should be able to let a car sit for more than a day without the battery dying. So we'll we'll. We will see what happened, the joys of owning new cars. Okay, when we come back, all right, there's two stories. Another major Milwaukee summer event canceled and herd immunity further and further away. I'll explain how they react to each other. Everyone 16 and older is now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. Do you have questions about the vaccine, getting back to work, or opening schools? If so, please join John McCure on Tuesday, April 27th for a special WTMJ roundtable, VaxFax 2.0. John will be joined by Dr. Ben Weston, a leading health official in Milwaukee County, to help answer your questions about the vaccine. Want to hear your question on the air? Well, give us a call at 414-203-8105. That's 414-203-8105. And don't forget to join us at 414-203-8105. 
4 o'clock on Tuesday, April 27th, for a special WTMJ roundtable, Vax Facts 2.0, on News Radio WTMJ, sponsored by Dave Drake Camp Eating. A lot of people texting in who've been dealing with battery issues in relatively new cars as well. Somebody texted in and said, what you need to do is you need to get one of these these compact mobile battery chargers, these starters that you can, that will start the car. I actually, I, I ordered one of those yesterday. It was the first thing I thought of because I, I hope I'm wrong, hope this isn't going to happen again, but it's like, okay, I, I just, if it does, I want to try to be able to start it myself without having to wait for somebody to come out. But it's one of these frustrating sort of things. And again, I just I'm like, all right, just can we figure out where the problem is? So, I mean, yeah, I understand we fixed the problem temporarily. But what when it what about what it happens again? Well, then bring it back in. Well, it doesn't help me when the car's dead and I'm somewhere else. All right. Let us completely and totally switch gears. The um, impact of covid-19 continues and it is more and more looking more and more likely like uh, the summer of 2021 is going to look unfortunately very similar to the summer of 2020 uh, the Milwaukee County Zoo announced today that their big summer event the 2021 zoo a la carte that festival where you know you have a number of different restaurants it's a, it's a great festival it really is they have like 20 30 40 different restaurants come and they set up at the zoo and people wander around and you look at the animals and you eat your way around the zoo originally scheduled for august 19th to 22nd um, it has now been canceled the zoo continues to adhere to current milwaukee county health and safety guidelines and out of an abundance of caution the festival has been canceled so they're saying nope we're 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 not prepared to do this. And so the zoo a la carte joins most of, not all, but most of the other, you know, lakefront festivals. Um, Irish Fest, I believe, is the only one still scheduled to go on. State Fair still up in the air. Summerfest hoping to do something in September. But, you know, zoo a la carte, now the latest major festival, canceled because of, of COVID. Because apparently there is this sense that we're not going to be close to normal um, so we're now in mid-April, May, June, July, August. Four months, we're, we're not going to be ready to get back to normal. Frustrating. I don't criticize the organizers at Zoo a la carte. It takes a lot of effort to put together an event. And if we're in an, in an uncertain environment, and as we have talked about before, if if you're still under these health restrictions that limit the number of people that can come, it, it just it becomes financially unworkable to try to do an event you need you need a critical mass of people to to pay that to pay the freight to make to make it worthwhile for the vendors to rent the tents and to do all this stuff and if you're if you're limited to 25 percent or 40 percent or whatever that is if you're limited by the government it, it just becomes unworkable then the other question is even if you weren't limited by the government would people feel comfortable going which is what brings me to the larger issue that is out there uh, usa today sort of quoting dr anthony fauci says that now more and more experts are increasingly saying that herd immunity is not going to be possible now remember for the last year we, we've been told that, well, we, we want to achieve herd immunity. And herd immunity is when approximately 80% of the population has been vaccinated. We are now approaching 50% of the population being vaccinated. But most people, and I have been saying this for quite a while, most people are now starting to realize that for whatever reason, you're not going to get 8 out of 10. 
You're, you're not going to get 80 percent. And it's just the, the, that's just the reality. The people the people that want to protect themselves or believe that the vaccines are important to protect others, they're, they're right now pretty much all those people have gotten their vaccines. And, you know, over certainly over the next couple of weeks, anybody that wants to be vaccinated is going to have had their chance to be vaccinated. And after that, well, I, you can run all the vaccine clinics you want and you can try to convince people. But seriously, a- after another couple of weeks, you know, you, people have had a chance to be vaccinated and they will have passed on it. So here's what the story says. Anthony Fauci um, he, he's decided he's not even going to talk about herd immunity anymore. Rather than concentrating on a number, let's get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. And what Fauci refuses to acknowledge, but others do, is that about 25% of Americans saying they might not want to be immunized, herd immunity is not attainable. All right. Then they quote somebody from Mayo Clinic saying, well, it's theoretically possible, but as a society, we have rejected that. There's no eradication at this point. It's off the table. The only thing we can talk about is control. In other words, COVID is not going to be eradicated. COVID will always be with us, and there will always be some people who are going to be getting it. Because they're, you know, we're not going to have mandatory vaccinations, and it, unless you get eighty to ninety percent vaccinations, you don't get herd immunity. So, if the reality is we don't have herd immunity, and we're not going to get herd immunity, the question becomes: At what point in time do we start going back to normal? If you have people that have made the decision that they're not going to get the vaccination, fine. How long does everybody else have to start worrying about them? And when can we go without masks? When can we do away with social distancing? When do we get to a point where we say, you know what, we can have zoo a la carte, and we can have Festa Italiana, and we can have State Fair, and we can go back and we can start being close to each other if we feel comfortable about it, and if people don't, they can stay home. But if herd immunity is now not attainable, and more and more of the experts are starting to say that, all right, at some point in time, don't we just have to say, You've had a chance to protect yourself. If you've made the decision not to, you're on your own. 855-616-1620. How long can we keep the lockdowns going? A month? Two months? Six months? Two years? Three years? At some point in time, don't we have to say enough is enough? What do you think? We discuss next. I'm serious. Our number, 855-616-1620. If we now, if the experts now acknowledge something that I've been saying for a year, that, that you're never going to get to, quote unquote, herd immunity. You're, you're never going to get to 80 percent vaccinations. Once we've gotten to a position where everybody who wants a vaccination can get one and they're available at that point in time, isn't it time to open up society? Isn't it time to drop the, these artificial restrictions of you can only have 25 percent of the people in this place or, or that people and, and a place and, and just open it up? Go back to normal, let people live their lives, understanding that there is going to be a degree of of risk and that there's going to be some people that get COVID. But all right, hopefully you can keep it to a manageable number. But if people are making the decisions not to get vaccinated, well, what can you let those people hold everybody else hostage as far as well, we can only have 25 percent of capacity at the stadium because 
well, there might be some people that are there that aren't vaccinated. Well, if you made the decision not to be vaccinated, okay, don't, don't you have to assume some risk? 855-616-1620. Jeff, I'm very concerned because both local officials and the CDC seem to be making long-term decisions on the assumption we will get to herd immunity. What if we don't? Masks and capacity limits forever? Yeah, I mean, that that's... That's what I'm asking as well, and it certainly seems like that is the reaction. Lockdowns, limits on business, all these things, when, you know, we're not, if the goal is herd immunity, you're not going to get there. At some point in time, don't we need to say people have to take responsibility for themselves? And if you've made the decision that you're not going to get vaccinated, not that get that degree of protection, and you want to go out in public, you got to understand you're going to have a risk that you're going to get sick. And I understand that, you know, there, there are unicorns and that people who could get vaccinated can get sick. But that's that's not too many. What was the numbers we had yesterday? Like six thousand out of eighty six million or something like that. It, it's not it, it's not a lot. But but there is always going to be a risk. But heck, there's a risk when you get in your car and you're driving to work that somebody could blow through a red light and hit you. When do we say enough is enough, especially now if we can't get herd immunity? All right, we pick up the conversation right there. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 855-616-1620. Let's start. Mike and Lannon. Hi, Mike. You're in WTMJ. How are you doing, Jeff? Good. What do you think? Well, well um, I, I understood your point with, uh, you know, just due to the people passing on the vaccine that uh, that herd immunity is not possible or going to be possible, right. according to the experts and Fauci. Right. But but my point is, um, are these experts and, and, and whatnot, are they even considering the millions of people that have already had COVID? Mm-hmm. The, the millions of people that were asymptomatic and the millions of people that were all but positive that they did have COVID but never went in to get tested. Mm-hmm. So when you, you add in all these millions of people that have already had the virus mm-hmm. with the people that are getting the vaccine, um, I'm not sure that herd immunity is not imp- is not possible. Uh, mm-hmm. No, I it, it, I mean, thank, it, I know I appreciate what you're saying, and it could be because, like for example, I as I've said, I had COVID and I had COVID mild symptoms. Thankfully, I know some people have had it and have had very bad reactions. I had it in November. I, I knew I had antibodies before I got the vaccine because I had a blood test. But but that's okay. I mean, I, I got it. So you you might be right that the actual by the time you factor in the vaccines and the natural immunity, maybe in the real world that um, that that we're closer to herd immunity than just looking at the vaccine numbers. And, and I certainly hope that's the case. But regardless, I, I think it's time to take the. I think it's time, if not now, in the very near future, to just take the controls off. I mean, it's are, are we or or we are in the point of saying, okay, moving forward, you know, football games this fall. Are, so we're not going to let seventy or eighty thousand people go. We're, we're not going to have college football like we said. We're not going to have you know indoor stadiums. We're not going to let people you know go back and sit next to other people watching basketball games. I'm sorry, I, I just don't think that's. I don't think that's necessary. I think at some point in time, you've got to stand up to the public health people and say, look, we, we've, we've done our job. I think people are over this in large measure. And sooner 
rather than later. I think public health officials and elected officials need to come to that responsibility. And again, some people some people aren't going to feel comfortable going out. I, I, I understand that. There's some people who are going to wear masks for the rest of their life. There's some people who aren't going to feel comfortable going into public areas, probably perhaps for the rest of their lives. I understand that. I, I respect that. And that's fine. But for everybody else who's willing to take at least a moderate modicum of risk. And if you've been vaccinated, again, your chances of getting COVID, what were the numbers we were looking at yesterday? Seven in a million? I, I mean, it's slim to none. Slim is on a bus out of town. And this idea that government is going to continue to tell us, no, you can only have 25% of the people at the Brewers game. Give me a break. Let's talk to John in Greendale. John, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks Hi, John. for taking my call. Sure. The one, the one thing that uh, keeps coming up uh, is, you know, herd immunity, and, and we all got to get the vaccines and all that. My wife and I, and actually my two sons, are fully vaccinated, and we're, you know, we're, we're trying to go out and start doing things as normal as possible. But the, the one thing I don't hear about is, let's say that you are running summer state fair or you own a sports franchise, uh, and you've got 25% uh, capacity capped off, how long can you stay in business yeah. uh, running those kinds of numbers? Yep. I, You know, it's funny you should mention it. On Saturday night, um, we went out with, with our friends Alan and Patty. We went out to dinner at, at a high-end restaurant that we have not, in Milwaukee, that we have not been to. Oh, for for over a year, and it was just, and we decided, okay, we're going to go out, and, and we walked in the restaurant, and it was almost sad because the restaurant had taken out, looked like me like about two thirds of the tables, and they were operating on a, a comparative skeleton staff, and the menu was real limited, and, and yes, they were open, and yes, they had people coming in, but I, clearly, I'm thinking unless unless their rent has gone down dramatically, there, there's no way they can make it for any length of time. You know, working with like thirty percent. Of, of this place that they just they're not going to be able to stay open and i know a lot of businesses to your point john they haven't been able to stay open well and if you're a fine dining restaurant you don't have a drive-through and people aren't going to go in and get a carry out so you're mm-hmm. you know you're you're really crushing them as well um i do know a couple of places that are doing quite well with with drive-throughs and things but yeah. The vast majority of, of, of businesses can't just can't stay open that way. No, well, exactly. And I mean, I was, you know, somebody said, well, you know, you went to a Brewers game. Yeah, I I went to. I've been. I'm. I have a partial season ticket holder. I have twenty games, and so last week we went to two games, Monday and Friday, and their their attendance was around eleven thousand people. Now eleven or twelve thousand in the ballpark. And on the one hand, in a purely selfish vein, it was it was kind of nice because my buddy and I are in one side of a row and there's only two other people in the other side of the row and everything else is um is zip locked off you can't sit in the seats they they don't have vendors in the stands um that which is unfortunate but there there's not people crawling all over you to go to the bathrooms or whatever you want to go in the bathrooms they're pretty much empty you want to walk up to a concession stand there's nobody there because there's only 12,000 people in the whole ballpark so on a really selfish perspective i thought hey but that this this isn't bad but big picture i don't understand how the brewers are making it i mean you know they you need a sort of critical mass of of people that that are going to be able to go and if you're artificially limited you can only have x number it's 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 how can you sustain this for any you know period of time and the answer is you can't and then you have idiotic 
guidelines that are put on top of that. For example, the rule, and it's the, not the Brewer's rule, it's the City of Milwaukee Health Department, the idiotic rule that if you're sitting in your seats with your family members, you, you have to wear your masks. You're not near anybody else, but you're supposed to wear your mask. Give me a break. What, that's good. what does that do? That's just as dumb as the rule that they originally had against tailgating. But here, here's the bottom line. We're not going to get to herd immunity. So at some point in time, if it's not today, and I actually think it's been probably a week or two ago, but if it's if not then, it's got to be in the very near future where we say, look, we're going to start to open everything up. You've had a chance to get vaccinated. If you've chosen not to get vaccinated, you are now assuming that risk. If you've been vaccinated and you still don't feel comfortable going out, well, okay, fine, then, then don't go out. But for the rest of the world, time to get back to normal. Here's a text, Jeff. How do teams who don't ever seem to have fans in the stands make it? Not questioning you, just legitimately curious. I I agree. I mean, I I just I watch I watch these baseball games on on television and you see 25% capacity, 25% capacity, no no fans in the stands. No, I I don't know how they make it. You you get a little bit of you get money from TV and stuff, but that that only takes it so far. Uh, you look at some of these basketball arenas and they're they're essentially they're virtually empty. And these are are tickets that normally they'd be selling for 200 or 250 dollars a piece and there's just nobody there. And you do wonder how long can teams continue to do that. Now here is the flip side, which is the other thing that the, the lockdown crowd never wants to talk about. In Texas a month ago, they said enough was enough, and, and they've they've largely opened up the state. Now, there there are still in individual in certain communities there are still restrictions, but there's no statewide mask mandate. There's no statewide limitation, and in a lot of part of the state parts of the state, it's getting back to normal. There is in uh, in Texas, Arlington, where the Texas Rangers play. There, 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 there's no capacity limits. There's, there's no. It is a baseball game like you would normally expect it to be a baseball game. And you know what? The, the season's been going on for three or four weeks now. I, I don't recall hearing any stories about people who attended baseball games in Texas, those being linked to super spreader events. Now, I, I mean, I guess is it possible somewhere that somebody who attended the event, you know, got contracted COVID from going there? But just like we were told that if we had these in-person elections, remember that this is going to be a super spreader event. Remember that last spring? We can't have an in-person election because it's going to, they're going to have these huge spikes. And, and that turned out to be complete and total flubbity dub. It, it just, it, it didn't happen. Texas has been open for a month. You're, you're not seeing massive numbers. I mean, the, the states where you've had the explosion of COVID, well, it's Michigan. No, it's Pennsylvania. It's New York. It's not Texas. And Texas has opened up things. Maybe that's the way to start to approach things, especially now that the vaccine is pretty much available to anybody who wants to get the vaccine. Let people get the vaccine. Encourage people to get the vaccine. I certainly do that. I'm vaccinated. And then say, okay, once you do that, and once you've had your two-week waiting period, go live your life and, and go to the ball games if you're comfortable doing that. And for the people that don't want to get the vaccines, understand that you might be at risk. And th- there's a chance that if you get COVID, you know, you're going to get really, really sick. And there might there's a chance maybe that, that you're going to pass away. But that's the risk that you're you're taking. I mean, look at what's going on in Texas. You don't see that explosion of numbers. And unless 
after we've had the experience of full houses and baseball stadiums, if you can't trace it back to, again, super spreader events, if they can do it in Texas, why can't you do it in Milwaukee? Tom Barrett. All right. Different aspect of this story. Now, I'm somebody who now believes it's time to start opening stuff up now that the vaccines are around. There is there is an area where I'm still hesitant, and that is the area of international travel. A story in USA Today. Do not travel list. The U.S. State Department is raising the alert level for most countries due to covid Travelers researching international trips during the coronavirus pandemic have been confronted with conflicting government advice. The CDC has one system for rating the risks by country. The State Department has another. Um, and in general now, what, what's happening is that the um, State Department is starting to get the State Department has been more liberal in saying, OK, you can go to these different places. The State Department said yesterday that it's raising the alert level on a number of countries um, as it as it looks at the data. And the bottom line is that the State Department is pretty much saying that, well, they say 80 percent of countries now carry the do not travel la- label, 80 percent of of countries, which brings it in line with the CDC. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have no hesitation at all traveling domestically. Don't I've been on a plane multiple times. I don't have any concerns. I, I, I just don't. I'm at that point. I have to tell you, I am still leery of international travel. And I'll tell you, the, the part of the reason is, first of all, you get to other countries and you don't know what the rules of those countries are going to be. I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to fly to Germany to you know see a bunch of cities and then find out that all those cities are locked down and I and I can't see the things I wanted to see. I'm also concerned that you fly to some of these cities and then there might be an outbreak. And even if you've been vaccinated, you're not going to be able to get back. Um, I, I don't want to get stuck somewhere. You know, that's not going to happen in the continental U.S. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you leery about overseas travel? And I'll tell you, even as somebody who's, you know, re- ready to open up and feels protected for a variety of reasons beyond just the possibility of contracting COVID, I'm I don't think I'm there with international travel yet. How about you? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Jeff, I am fully vaccinated and looking forward to an all-inclusive trip in June in Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic. I'll get a negative COVID test provided by the resort to get back home, direct flights to and from Chicago. Enough is enough. And like you said, it's time to start living again. Yeah, I think I I, I know. Matter of fact, I, I have some friends actually it's very good friends of mine their their son and daughter-in-law taking their family and they're going to be going to Punta Cana right around that that time i have a couple other friends who got just got back from a, a resort in in mexico but it, again these were there's these were kind of like all inclusive resorts my and i want people to understand when i say i'm reluctant for international travel it's not so much because I'm afraid that I'm going to get sick. I, I think I'm as protected as well as I can be. It's more like you you just don't know what's going to happen. It, it's the variables. I you I don't I don't want to get I don't want to get to England 
and not be able to see all the things I want to see because Europe is is, is still essentially shut down. I mean, I, I don't want to go to Barcelona and not be able to experience Barcelona. I don't want to go to Rome and not be able to see anything because everything is shut down. And then I also don't want to run the risk of not being able to get back from from you know Rome or from you know England or or wherever. Those are some of the concerns I have, and so that's why. I, it's not because I'm afraid of getting sick. It's because of the realities that are out there. How, how, what is the experience going to be like? You know, as soon as the experience is, is good, um, that's fine. Jeff, funny how you pick and choose what you will follow as far as government suggestions go. Should be safe to travel if you, if you say open everything. Well, it, it's not, Again, it's not the government recommendation about, gee, you should be worried about getting sick. It's more like, what is the experience going to be like? And who, who wants to go to Paris if, you know, Paris right now, I think they're in a, in a quarantine. They're in another one of their shutdowns where you can't leave your house and go out on the street and there's curfews. I think that's going to be the case all through this month. Who wants to go to Paris if you can't go out and enjoy the experience of Paris? That's the um, reality of, of this. Um, so, I mean, I think that's where you have to decide. But on the other hand, if you're comfortable about traveling, fine. Jeff, my wife and I were talking about travel, and we decided there's so many places in the U.S. we want to go see. Getting stranded in Europe is not an exciting proposal. I got my first uh, shot last week, and I'm thinking normal international travel will be a long time coming. I think that, um, you know, that's that's it. Jeff, um, if we're not allowed to travel internationally, why are they letting people crossing the border from Mexico? That's just bringing in COVID also. Well, that's an entirely different story. <laughs> you know, that's an entirely different story. Jeff, we're going to Romania in June and have a place to get tested before we're supposed to come back. I am not worried at all. Well, I mean, I think there's that option as well. Bottom line is uh, international travel, not necessary from a health perspective, but from other perspectives, I think it might be a little bit of a cautionary tale. All right, we're going to be back. A lot of stuff coming up in the 2 o'clock hour. Do not go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa, in the small world category, when I first started dating my wife a number of years back, or a few years back, um, it, w- it was interesting because... We have some friends. Her, the, the parents of one of her best friends growing up were kind of like surrogates, mom and dad for for my wife, and she loved her family as well. And um, this would be Betsy and Gary. And Betsy and Gary, Betsy in particular, have been like when they found out we were dating. She was very excited because she's been listening to my radio program for twenty plus years. Oh, she yeah. said, "Well, I think I know all." <laughs> no, that that's so delighted, and so they, they have now sort of embraced me, and so I've I've now become like the son-in-law as well. I love so that. Yeah. It, it it is so nice, and matter of fact. Um, Fran was out there. She just sent me a picture of them now and said, well, you should say a very, uh, an early happy Mother's Day to, to Betsy Aww, and a belated happy so birthday. Nice. So absolutely, that, <coughs> that works out. Mm-hmm. They were uh, just, but it, it it is kind of amazing that, you know, it's a small world. It really guess, is, yeah. Is the bottom line. And then on a, on a, on a sadder note, I do want to send out a note of condolence. I, I just saw this note from State Senator Alberto Darling. If you have been involved, if you've been on, involved or around Republican politics over the course of the last 40 or 50 years, 
one of the legendary figures and and see there, there's two types of people that get into politics there's the people who get involved as the candidates they put themselves out out front to run for office and there's a whole lot of reasons why why people do that but but there's also the people behind the scenes that make that make politics work that the people that that advise the candidates that raise money that organize the events that um, and and it, it it can it varies on all sorts of different levels to the people who are stuffing the envelopes when things are sent out the the, the grease that makes the wheels of politics turn really it, it's not necessarily the candidates it's the people behind the scenes who are oftentimes toiling they don't get any sort of recognition uh, that, you know what they're doing is because they care for candidates they are supporting the candidates they care for causes and so they're willing to work for them well in any event if you've been around Republican politics in this state anytime in the last 50 years, you undoubtedly had run across Don Taylor. Don was the uh, former head of Waukesha State Bank. It was a family business. Um, he was involved. He was the Waukesha County Republican Ch- Party chairman for for decades, you know, two different occasions. But, but Don, just a legendary figure in Waukesha politics, but also in statewide politics as, as well, just... Um, you know, and, and very, very supportive to, you know, up and coming candidates and things of the like. And I'm not talking about just financially. I'm talking about with advice and Don, just absolutely legendary. Anyways, Don passed away um, over the weekend uh, at the age of um, 88, at the age of 88. But Don, Don Taylor was was a great man. And there's a lot of us who stuck our toes in politics who owe him owe him a debt. And so he will he will definitely miss be missed. So Don um sail on. All right. I want to talk about and again we've had so many mass shootings lately, including, you know, the shooting at the Kenosha bar the other night, that it, it's almost difficult to keep track. It's just I we were talking earlier. Today is April 20th. And if you weren't listening earlier in the show, this is um, it's like pothead day. It's 420 is is recognized by you know pot enthusiasts. It's, they, they want it to be a national holiday. And it's Hitler's birthday. And it's the anniversary of the Columbine shootings. And I can remember being on the radio when uh, the Columbine shooting occurred. And it was at that point in time, the idea of a of a mass shooting in a high school what was absolutely unthinkable. And it's all everyone talked about. I mean, I can remember doing shows. Nobody wanted to talk about anything different for three or four days because this was just, I, I can't believe it. Somebody went in and shot up a high school. And and now, unfortunately, you know, decades later, we're, 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 we're kind of immune to this. Oh, there was a shooting here. There was a shooting there. You know, where, where was this one? And it's just, it, it's just unfortunate that we just, we're kind of getting numb to this. Uh, so it's easy to forget, you know, which shooting was this or which shooting was that. Well, the one I want to talk about it is what happened in Indianapolis, what, a week or so ago. This was the shooting where you had the, 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 the shooter showed up, remember, at the Federal Express plant facility in, uh, in, outside of Indianapolis. And he got there pretty much right around, right when like shifts were changing. I think it was like 11 o'clock or whatever. And he takes a gun out of the car and starts shooting. And um, you, you have a number of people who end up, you know, dying as part of the shooting spree. And then he kills himself. Well, it was a 19-year-old. His name was uh, Brandon Hole. And the, the guy was, was clearly crazy. 
There's just no question about it. The guy was crazy. He was one of these ticking time bombs. And a lot of times, you know, after there's a shooting, sometimes the reaction is, well, we, you know, ever, you know, nobody would have thought that this person would do it. Well, then there's the other reaction. Everybody thought, hey, gosh, this, this is a guy. Yeah. This is a guy who showed all the characteristics of being a, a mass shooter. Well, then it turns out that in March of 2020, so about, you know, a year ago, his mother had contacted the police and said, hey, my kid has problems. I'm afraid that he's planning to try to do something to commit suicide by cop. You know, something that, you know, puts yourself in a situation where you, you make the police officers shoot you. And she said he, he had purchased, a, I believe it was a shotgun. And she said, you know, you need, you know, we... You know, we need to do something. I mean, the kid is unstable. So what happens is law enforcement, you know, go out. They look at him. He's on their radar as somebody who's got mental health issues and violent tendencies. And so what they do is they take the gun away from him, gives up his gun, and he's temporarily committed to a local hospital for evaluation. All right? Well, and. In Indiana, they have what's known as a red flag law. And the red flag law says that after somebody's been committed, you, you have you have 14 days to start a, a legal action against them, which would um, put the kid under, in this case, the, the person under court supervision and also arguably prevent him from being able to legally obtain weapons in the future. Authorities decide not to go pursue this. And the reason they say they're not going to pursue it is, look, we we thought we had a, a temporary problem here. He gave up the gun. We got we took the gun. He never asked for it back. So, you know, we had 14 days to do something, and we were afraid that we couldn't get our act together in 14 days. So, you know, we just said enough is enough. That's fine. And we, we send him back, you know, home. And then a year later... He has purchased two other firearms because there were no prohibition against him doing that. And then he shows up at the Federal Express place, and you've got eight people dead, and he takes his own life. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, the prosecutors are kind of shrugging their shoulders about this, and they're saying, well, you know, there really there wasn't that much that we could do, and we only had 14 days, and we were afraid if we tried to pursue this, well, we, we might end up losing, and then we'd have to give him his gun back. So, you know, we, we got the gun away from him, and we're going to say, you know, that that's well enough. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm sorry, but it's not. I mean, we we talk a lot about these red flag laws, and I would argue that if there's one thing that you can find agreement on among whether it's gun banners or gun right activists or whatever, if there's one thing that I think Republicans, Democrats, independents can agree on, we would agree that dangerously mentally ill people should not have firearms and should not have access to firearms legally, at, at least. Now, it might be impossible to stop somebody who's mentally ill and dangerous from getting a gun, but you shouldn't be able to walk into a store and legally purchase them. But these red flag laws, and unless they are vigorously enforced, and I'm talking about, you know, erring on the side of, look, we've got a, somebody, some kid's mother calls up and says, my kid is suicidal, 
I think he is planning a, a suicide by cop, trying to do something that will induce law enforcement to have to shoot him. How many more red flags do do you need? And the idea that, well, he, he agreed to voluntarily be examined and he surrendered his gun. Well, what does that mean? It, it means absolutely nothing. I, I think... It is fair to criticize the prosecutors in this case for dropping the ball. That is what happened. Secondly, I think if we're going to do these red flag laws, what we have to do is we have to expand this. We have to see a commitment among prosecutors and law enforcement that, yeah, we're going to make this a priority. And maybe we need to fudge the laws a little bit to give the prosecutors you know, more time to put their case together or something like that. But if... I'm a big believer in red flag laws, and it's frustrating to me to see a situation like this where somebody who shouldn't have fallen through the cracks has fallen through the cracks. 855-616-1620, what do you think? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's talk to Lamar. Lamar, hello. Hey, uh, uh, thanks for taking my call, sure. uh, Jeff. Uh, so, a couple of quick points. Uh, on one hand, I agree with conservatives when they say that we have enough laws in the books to that you know to to try to deal with some of this stuff. I right. agree with them. I would also you know say that we don't really put a lot of resources into you know, enforcing those laws. The law is only good as it's enforcement, right? But on the other hand, let's be honest. If we were to get aggressive with, you know, trying to be preventive about, you know, you know, gun violence when it comes in respect to gun ownership, mm-hmm. gun rights folks would go berserk because they would think that's a slippery slope to take away our guns. And that's the that's the problem with the narrative. There's there's you know, there's levels to this and there's a there's a ground to be had, but we can't gain that ground because everyone thinks if you give an inch, you give a mile. Well, but in some respects, yeah. But I see. I, I think the, these red flag laws, for example, Lamar. I think that's one where there, there is a commonality. I don't think you're going to find anybody who would say you've got this 18 year old kid who's like left a trail of, of of threats and weird behavior, whose mother says. He's got this gun, and he's talking about killing himself. I'm not sure there's anybody left, right, or in the center would think it's a good idea for this kid to still have a gun. Right, I agree with that. After hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Yeah. But let that let that kid let that let the threat be let the, the let it be the threat be not real. Okay, let's say this kid that they thought that this kid was going to be in that situation. They went and they investigated, and let's say they took the, they aired on caution. They mm-hmm. took his gun, and then come to find out what it, it wasn't what they said. Now he wants his gun back. Now he's screaming, and that's what I'm saying. That's that that gets a ton of pushback yeah. from people because it's like, okay, they took his guns, they're going to take my gun. Yeah, I guess. I mean, th- I see what you're saying, but I, I see I'm not I, I'm not sure that you're going to have a lot of the the I'm not sure that you're going to have a lot of the, the, the even the most strident Second Amendment folks. That, that are going to be like looking at, at a situation like this, because candidly, this one doesn't strike me as being even close. I, I think, yeah, and, and they, they did take the kid's gun away, and, and he didn't ask for it back. And so that's why the prosecutors said, okay, we're not going to push this any further, because they were afraid that if we go into court and we try to um, argue that, you know, you shouldn't have a gun, we're afraid that what's going to happen is we'll lose and you'll get that gun back. Well, sometimes, though, I think you have to take th- those risks. And a- as somebody who comes at things from the conservative side of the aisle. I mean, I'm here to tell you, I think 
when you have these situations, are there prosecutors somewhere in some places that might use red flag laws as a pretext to try to take guns out of the hands of otherwise law-abiding, non-dangerous citizens? Yeah. So you you have to be somewhat circumspect as to how you use that. I, I get it. I understand that, and I'm I'm down with that. But, 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 you know, when you've got a situation where, again, you don't have to follow the breadcrumbs too far to understand that this, this kid had lots and lots of problems, and the mother is saying he's planning to kill himself, and he's trying to, you know, maybe take some police officers with him. If I'm the prosecutor, that's the one that tells me, you know, I got to jump in. Now, I do think in defense of the prosecutors, the law in Indiana gives them this really, really short window. I think they they only have like 14 days to act, and that's that is not a lot of time. Part of the problem, and this goes to the larger issue with how we handle the the mentally ill, is that we have a great reluctance in this country to take things away from the mentally ill. And and by that, I mean, you know, you, you have to in Wisconsin. You know, we've talked about this before. Before you can involuntarily commit people, you've got to prove that they're a danger to themselves or a danger to others. So uh, many times you, you can't prove that. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees it, but you can't prove that until they actually out, act out in a way that it is a, a danger. Um, that's Okay, Jeff, so is it true that anybody can call and have somebody red flag? Where is the proof the person should be red flagged before the authorities are called in? Well, you, you, do, you are entitled to due process. And, and so, yes, I, I guess it's theoretically possible that somebody could call and say, hey, you know, we think um, – We'll pick on my producer, Gru, since he's not here today. We think Gru is, is a danger, and, you know, you should check that out. You do have to have probable cause to believe. So it's not just we're going to go out and we're going to grab you and we're going to lock you up for a few weeks just based on some anonymous tip. I mean, there has to be a, a basis for it, and maybe you need a little bit more time to investigate these things. But I, I think you have to be aggressive in doing this because if you look at where a lot of the – not certainly not all – but a lot of the, this gun crime comes from, particularly the, the mass shootings, not the crimes of opportunity, not the people who are shooting other people in carjackings or whatever. But a lot of it is, you know, these dangerously mentally ill people. And you look back and you say, well, of course, this guy is, was dangerously mentally ill. Jeff, we're great after the fact. We're terrible at prevention. Um, we don't need guns in society. That time has passed. Remove all gun ownership. There is no right to own a gun. Uh, well, okay, I, I live in the real world, and there are millions, millions of firearms around. And the truth of the matter is, people, forget the Second Amendment, you're, you're never going to remove firearms from society. The other truth of the matter is, the overwhelming majority, whether it's 95% or 99% of guns, are, are not misused. The problem is, you have... Guns that are in the hands of criminals. You have guns that are in the hands of mentally ill people. And that small percentage of people are responsible for an incredibly disproportionate amount of carnage. My argument would be, okay, let's, let's not worry about the guy who has a rifle to go deer hunting. Let, let's worry about the, the kid whose mother is so concerned that he's going to kill himself or kill others that she's calling the, the police. I mean, that's where I think you need to, you know, concentrate your resources. Simply saying, let's remove guns from society. Well, t- tell me how you're going to do that. I mean, are we now going to, we, we can't, we can't get an agreement on locking up 
people who commit gun crimes in urban areas. If we were to say, okay, you've been carrying a gun, you used it uh, to rob a liquor store, you didn't kill anybody, but we're going to send you to prison for five years, there's going to be this huge outrage. Oh, you're locking up too many of this type of person or, or that type of person. I mean, we, we can't even agree that people who commit crimes with guns should be put into prison for lengthy periods of time. Um, how, how are we going to try to take firearms out of the hands of everybody? I mean, that's... That's just not a reality, and it's just not going to, you know, happen. What we need to do is concentrate on where the problems is. Jeff, what scares me with red flag laws, if an individual owns guns and he knows he needs mental health, help, he might not seek the help he needs because he's afraid that he might lose the guns. Um, Yes, um, I think that's it. Jeff, you know, I don't understand how you don't know anybody just getting a check from like SSI or something that probably got psychological problems. Something's wrong somewhere. Well, I, I, I do. I think a lot of times and hindsight is twenty twenty. but you look at this stuff and you know that there's people who should not own firearms. And I think there's got to be ways of detecting that. But when you have a parent who says, my 18-year-old son has a shotgun and he's talking about killing himself and other people. You don't need to be the greatest prosecutor in the world to recognize that that's a red flag and maybe that's a situation where the red flag law needs to be in place. Well, uh, that is the breaking news. The jury in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin has reached a verdict. They began deliberating last evening, deliberated for about three hours, came back this morning, deliberated the morning, um, had lunch, and presumably has, has reached a verdict. The verdict is going to be read in open court probably about an hour from now. They're saying between 3.30 and 4 p.m., you might say, well, why don't they just read it now? What happens is it, it takes time to begin assembling people. The The jury will, will send a note typically to the bailiff who will then communicate to the judge, and it will say we, we have a verdict. Then what happens is the court will notify. Now, everybody isn't sitting in the courtroom. The court will call the attorneys and say, okay, we, we've got a verdict and we're going to take it within, you know, be here within the next hour or whatever. So it takes a little while to assemble people. In addition, my guess is that because of the, the high public profile nature of this case, there there's going to be added security in the courtroom and surrounding. So they need a little bit of time to begin to get this established. The panel of seven women and five men, um, seven women, five men, began deliberating yesterday. So the jury, I don't know, you have to do the the counting, but I mean, this is probably, you know, a a verdict in in less than, certainly less than 10 hours. If, and I I always say this, and this is the problem with doing these things, because I'm going to make a prediction, and then an hour and a half from now, people can say, yeah, you nailed it, or you don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Former Federal Prosecutor. But this this timing is what I would describe as as prime prosecution time. I mean, if you if if you're going to get a a guilty verdict, and, and I'm generalizing now, but I'm generalizing as somebody who who tried probably over a hundred federal jury cases in in his life, th- this would be 
this would be an, an indicator to me, with the jury reaching a verdict this quickly, that it's either they're, they're going to acquit on, on everything because they think the prosecution's case is, has no merit, which... I don't think that I don't think that reasonably that's the position or it means that they're going to get convictions. And I said earlier, I think you're probably going to see convictions on everything could end up being proven wrong about that. But this would normally be what I would describe again as a prime prosecution time. If you're if you're a defendant, what you would have been hoping for. See, I just don't think you're going to be able to convince. Keep in mind, the verdict needs to be unanimous. You need to have 12 people agree that he is either guilty or not guilty, and sometimes people lose sight of that. You 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 can't you you can't get a conviction or an acquittal un- unless people are unanimous. And in a case like this, I got to think that there's at least a, a handful of jurors who would say, "No, he, he's clearly guilty as heck." I think the defense was trying to hope to find maybe you know one person that they could you know convince that there's a reasonable doubt here, and that person would delay the proceedings. Um, a, a verdict. This quickly, I, I think to me, again, my sense is it would be a prime prosecution verdict. Um, I could be wrong. All right, so there's three charges. First charge is second degree murder. And this is the most significant one, although they are all significant. Second degree murder is causing the death of a human being without intent to cause the death. See, intent is key. You don't need to intend to kill him. But you do, in fact, kill them while committing or attempting to commit another felony. In this case, the alleged felony was a third-degree assault. Um, What that means is they have to find that the officer, former officer, intended to commit an assault that would cause bodily harm or intentionally aided in such assault. So when he put his, his knee on him and we held him down, did he intend to commit an assault that could cause bodily harm, right? So I, I think I think he's going to get convicted on that. Then there's the third-degree murder charge. That is unintentionally causing somebody's death by committing an act that is eminently dangerous to other persons while exhibiting a depraved mind with reckless disregard for human life. The defendant's act may not have been specifically intended to cause death, and it may not have been specifically directed at the person whose death occurred, but it must have been committed with a conscious indifference to the loss of life. I think you probably got that. And then the third charge, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence where a person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes the chance of causing death or great bodily harm to somebody else. That's I think that one's probably pretty clear as, as well. So the, the jury reached the deliberations, um, and now they're going to have the verdict. Again, I, I think it's prime prosecution time. I, I, I could be wrong. There, there could be something different. But... I think, and I said this earlier, I think the prosecution did a very, very good job of of dotting their I's, crossing their T's, and presenting a, a thorough case as to why the conduct of this police officer was was so beyond the pale. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the, video, the video is very, very compelling. One of the other interesting tactical decisions that I think worked in the benefit of the prosecution is the fact that the other three Minneapolis police officers who have been charged in connection with this, their, their trial was sever, severed, separated from, they call it severance, their trial was separated from this trial. I think 
those trials, which are scheduled, I believe, for August, that's a completely different story because I think, you know, the officers that, that kind of stood around and didn't intervene, trying to convict them is I'm not saying it's an impossibility, but I believe that's going to be a much tougher prosecution than this one. So by singling out the one officer who was, I think, directly responsible for the death, I think that was a wise decision by the prosecutors and I think made this an easier, cleaner prosecution. All right, so I think it's going to be guilty all around. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, we've got a couple minutes. You can look into your crystal ball. What do you think the jury is going to do with this case? We discuss. In the end, a couple of people are saying, when are they going to read the verdict? Uh, the, right now, it's estimated 3.30 our time, so about 45 minutes from now. Here, here's an, an interesting little piece of trivia for people who haven't been following it. The the judge in this case is um, from Oconomowoc. He's a graduate of Oconomowoc High School in 1977, Peter Cahill. Now, I'm going to be dating myself, but he was um, uh, he was a member of the debate team at Oconomowoc. Now, I was a member of the Nicolay High School debate team. I graduated two years before him. There, there's no question that we, we debated each other. But but here's the other interesting thing. Uh, the judge's dad, Jerry Cahill, I, I knew the judge's dad. He worked in the Waukesha District Attorney's Office um, from 74 until 1982. And it, it kind of, but the, the di- he worked in the District Attorney's Office then, and he was a close friend of my friend John Fryett, who was the Waukesha District Attorney, who went on to be the U.S. Attorney that I worked for for a couple of years. So it, it is a small world. I, I bring that up because I think, the, and I want to say this in advance, I would, regardless of what the verdict is, I, I think this trial was very, very well handled. Um, I think, as I said earlier, I think the prosecution did a very, very thorough good job presenting the evidence that they presented. I think that the defense attorneys, while having less to work with, I think the defense attorneys did a good job, and I think the judge did a very good job. It's one of the reasons why I'm sure he was incensed. If you are if you weren't listening at the very start of the show, the first thing that happened yesterday morning before closing arguments is after Mad Maxine Waters you know, helicopters into Brooklyn Center, Minneapolis on Saturday night when the jury is is not sequestered. So the jury is still out there and starts talking about, hey, if this verdict isn't right, we need to be more confrontational, which some people could be in, in reasonably interpret as a, a call for people to go out and riot if, if the verdict isn't right. So, you know, Maxine Waters says that. The jury isn't sequestered at this point in time. And so the first thing the defense attorney does on Monday morning is says, hey, judge, I, I want a mistrial. I mean, this this jury has been exposed to news. Here you've got this congresswoman who flies into here from California, and she's essentially reasonable people could interpret what she's saying as, hey, go out and riot if you don't convict my guy. And the, the judge, to his credit, now he denied the motion. I would have denied the motion, too. But he said, yeah, you know, you're, I appreciate what the issue you are raising, and I understand that this has now created an issue for you on appeal in the event your client is, in fact, convicted. Um, and, I, and I wish 
elected officials would essentially just like shut up and let 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 the trial let the trial take place and let the trial run through. But I mean, I, I think uh, the judge, if you look back on this trial. Regardless of what the verdict is, you know, 45 minutes from now, and regardless, there's going to be some people that are going to be happy. There's going to be some people that are going to be unhappy. But regardless of what that is, I I think it was a fair trial in the courtroom. I think the judge did a good job. I think both sides were well represented. This isn't. It's not a situation like the O.J. trial where you had the judge that got this complete, that judge, Lance Edo, who just completely lost control of the trial. And as a result, justice doesn't get done. Jeff, how can this be an impartial jury if they all know and going in, if they find him not guilty or hung jury, um, the mob would find their names and addresses and burn their houses down? Well, that that's that is an issue. There's there's no question that is. That that's that's always the issue that that you you take is that the jurors you know do they have personal fear for themselves? Jeff, I agree that the verdict is going to be a conviction on all counts, but I fear civil unrest regardless, particularly when those likely protesters who aren't well informed um, find out that uh, the defendant can't be sentenced for as long as they probably want. Well, that that's going to be the the second day story. It's going to be what is the verdict, and it's going to be how does the crowd respond? Will you have people if they feel inclined to take to the streets? Will it be taking to the streets to applaud the the justice system? Because this is the thing that happens all the time. We have people that say we want justice, and I and I always say, what what does that? mean we want justice for this person we want justice for that person well some people think that okay well well, justice means that the police officer has to go to prison forever other people say well the police officer did nothing wrong justice is that they that they skate so justice is going to be this sort of relative thing that people are going to define but if the people who want to see the officer convicted if that in fact happens i think it's a fair question you know will Will you see people taking to the streets and engaging in the type of anarchy that we have seen in in other places? My my hope is, we we hope uh, that that is not the case. Um, let's see, um, Jeff. What does the short deliberation usually indicate? A very short deliberation indicates either. Either it's an all-prosecution thing or it's an all-defense thing. They go back, they take the first vote, and they decide eh, that the prosecution just failed, didn't make its case, we all agree. Of deliberation in a case like this, taking this length of time, I mean, it, 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 it wasn't like it was 15 minutes, so that they clearly weighed through the counts and stuff. As I said earlier, um, I think this is a prime prosecution verdict. I mean, I think if I were a prosecutor and I was sitting down there, I would say, okay, this jury coming back, you know, they've had it for a few hours. It takes a little while to get organized and go through the counts and sort out the evidence and discuss the stuff. I just don't think in a case like this, you're going to find 12 people that are going to agree unanimously that the government, the state, didn't prove its case. So I would I would interpret a deliberation like this as to be good news to the prosecution. Um, Jeff, no matter what the verdict, no one wins. It's terribly sad. It is terribly sad. There's no there's no winners here. There, there's there's no winners for the deceased. There's no winners for the police department. There's no winners for the city of Minneapolis. There's no winners for Mr. Floyd's family. Yeah, it, it's a tragedy regardless. Um, Jeff, unfortunately, I think regardless of the verdict, there will be more civil unrest everywhere. 
Hope um, hope they're wrong. Jeff, um, after going back and forth, I think they had to compromise, and they agreed on the charge of manslaughter. Huh. I, I, I think if that were the case, I think they would have to be out longer. Um, I, I just... Because I, I think the prosecution presented a strong case on all counts. I, I think that I think that if there was a if there was a deliberation like that, you drop it down to the lowest count, you kick the other two. I think it would have taken a lot longer. I, but that that's just me. And again, you, I always say this: you can go broke trying to make predictions about what verdicts are. Now I've. I've um I've agreed I'm going to stick around a little bit. I'm going to come in around 3:30 on Wisconsin's afternoon news and kind of dissect the verdict once it comes out. So, might be that, you know, within 30 minutes I'm saying, "Boy, I just didn't see it coming." But again, I I think it was a well-tried case and I think the I I think that the prosecution did a very very good job of this and I think the um I I think the the, the bottom line is that uh, there was that. Uh, Jeff, I think he's going to be found guilty. Verdict came back way too fast for him to be considered not guilty. Um, Yeah, I think that's kind of where I see it, too. Jeff, uh, some of the protesters don't need justice. Their families need closure. There is a difference. Um, Jeff, do you think the president should be voicing his opinion on what the verdict should be? I I addressed this earlier. Uh, I think it is unfortunate that President Biden did not wait until after the verdict to weigh in on the verdict. I think his timing was was unfortunate. Now, the, the caveat to that is, unlike Maxine Waters, who was talking about we need to be more confrontational, the, the jury wasn't sequestered. They weren't locked up. They were at their homes. And it's entirely possible, despite being told by the judge, don't watch any media, it's entirely possible that one or more of the jurors could have heard what Maxine Waters was saying. Um, they've been locked up. They are sequestered. So the fact that President Biden chose to weigh in today, the jury could not have heard his remarks and therefore you know, couldn't have been influenced by him. That being said, I think it would have been in the best interest of the president to wait until the verdict comes in and then, you know, offer his remarks as opposed to, well, I I hope they end up doing the right thing, which everybody understands what the president means in that regard. I think he would have been better off if he could have just not waited into this until, well, maybe within the next hour or so. I don't think it would have cost anything, but I, I don't think it's going to create an appellate issue like Maxine Waters' remarks did. Okay, 2.54, let's take a quick break. When we come back, well, I have a pretty good idea what Eric and Melissa have on their minds for this afternoon. Stick around.